It's been about an hour of us trying to log into our account where we post these podcasts, and we got locked out of it, and then we couldn't remember our password, and then we're trying to reset it, which is linked to a Gmail account, but then we've realized in the past 30 minutes that, like, all of Google is down? Yeah, Gmail is down. It's just saying that your email doesn't exist, that our account is under. It's not Anchor's fault. Anchor no. is a good hashtag ad. Yeah. Um, Anchor does a, not actually an ad, but they do a great job. We love them. But it's Gmail. Something's going on. So I'm, weird. My immediate response is to think that, like, it's some huge thing that's happening, like some big hacker. I don't see why it couldn't be that. Like, for all of Google to be down that's like that. That's a big thing. The reason we know that everybody is handling this is because I looked up, Forums, like, Gmail yeah. is down, and everyone is saying from all over the nation, like, my Gmails are down. I can't yeah. get in. Mine just disappeared. Like, so Everyone's I know like, this, this is isn't happening? like, this isn't just like a, uh, us thing. So maybe on the next episode, we'll know exactly what happened. And maybe I have lost everything in my email, which wouldn't be the first time that I've lost an entire email, but. I know, I feel like you get, like, hacked or something happens The to last account. one was Hotmail, though. And so, literally, the last one was Hotmail. And I was like, all right, let me switch to Gmail. They haven't had any issues. And then this happens. I'm scared. This is so crazy. And that's tied to YouTube, so people are probably freaking out. Oh, I'm sure. Like, people that, that's their, live like, they live off doing YouTube. I can't imagine how stressful that must be. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. We can just <laughs> record this and go about. Oh, yeah. So we're life. recording this just directly off of Anchor in hopes that and we will get in. And we're trying to, like, get in and upload it. So, so if you hear this, we're safe, guys. We made it. No, wait. This is now. We might not be by You're the right. time. You're right. You're right. No, but if they hear it, like, that means it was, it's was it gone out at some point. Yeah, if you don't hear it, no, I'm just kidding. If you don't hear it, then they won't you know. don't hear it, and we'll be screwed, and we'll never see you again or talk to you They'll again. They'll be like, what happened to that podcast? Yeah. <laughs> you'll never know. Are you ready to lose again at flipping our coin? I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope that you actually go first this time. Well, why? I was just just I, to be I, nice. I, it would have just been funny. Bad. It would just been funny for me to roast you like that, and then you go first. You know? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. I'm flipping this time. What do you call it? Heads. Tails. Mother. <laughs> All good, whatever, go. It's fine. I'm cranky, so Aww. try to be in a better mood. I know. So I feel like good. my like I feel like I've been shaken and so like I core. need to like <sighs> so so stressful. It's probably not the best time to record an episode, but maybe we'll be more feisty with our stories and it'll be the best <laughs> we've ever that recorded. Is that is true. Um okay, so my story is um okay, so let me just preface it with uh, I got a lot of the background information like from online sources and stuff, but then a big part of the story has to do with the way that they interrogated people. Ooh. And I was, I just watched straight up the like videos that yeah. they have. And so a lot of it, like as I was watching, I just kind of like jotted down notes. And so this isn't going to be, once it gets to that part, it's not going to be like, it's very, from your uh, perspective. Yeah, but yeah. it's very, like, random little notes. So yeah, that's fine. I, I that's was cool. hoping that I'm like, okay, as I read this, I'll, it'll jog my memory, and then I can kind of go into deeper, like, stuff about it. But That's cool. You're being the journalist. <laughs> yeah, I was just a little... I was like, I can make this more polished, but I'm just going to write notes, and then I'm just going to go No, there. that's fine. But the background stuff is more, like, polished. Okay, so my story is about Jennifer Pan. 
Yeah, that's how you say the last name. Pain. Have you heard of her? Maybe. Um, okay, so Jennifer Pan. I'll, I'll give you her backstory first. Um, Jennifer Pan's mom was named Bic Ha Pan. They were Vietnamese. And her father's name is Han Hue Pan. Are you good? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, no, I'm good. Um, they were her parents were Vietnamese immigrants, and okay. they were living in Canada. So now they're in Canada, but they came from Vietnam. But Jennifer was born in Canada. I love Canada. I've never been to Canada. Um, so they I, had, I haven't either. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> so they had two kids. Jennifer, obviously, she was born in 1986, and her brother Felix was born in 1989. Uh, the Pans found work at Magna International which was an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario. Is it Ontario or Ontario? I see Ontario, but I, I feel don't like it's know. one of those things that people I just never say. know. Like there's so there's certain places Nevada, Nevada. Yeah. Like that people get so passionate about mm-hmm. it stresses me out because it's like <laughs> I overthink it and then I say the one I'm not trying to say. Yeah. Just, I get that. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying, Canada, yeah. that place. That place. So, Han worked as a tool and die maker while Bic made car parts. So, they were just in that business. Cool. The The couple persistently worked hard for their money to ensure that their children had the upgr- upbringing and opportunities they themselves had missed out on, which is a very, like, common thing. Obviously, when parents go through, like, hard times, they're like, you know, I'm going to make a better life for my kids. But... Uh, Han and Bic were very thrifty and by 2004 were financially stable enough to purchase a large house with a two-car garage on a residential street in Markham, a city in the greater Toronto area with a large Asian population. Bic drove a Lexus ES300 and Han drove a Mercedes-Benz class W203. I have no idea what those cars are, but if you do, you know what I'm talking about. They mm-hmm. had accumulated, by this point, $200,000 in savings. So they were doing pretty well at this point. I mean, I would love $200,000 in my savings. <laughs> that is, uh, you could just straight up buy a house. Yeah, for, for real. So they were doing really well. Jennifer's parents, though, set many goals for their children and had extremely high expectations of them. Mm-hmm. Jennifer was um, taking piano lessons at the age of four, as well as figure skating classes where she trained most days during the week. Yeah. She had hopes of becoming an Olympic figure skating champion until she tore a ligament in her knee. Mm-hmm. Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School, where she played the flute in the school band. According to her high school friend, Karen K. Ho, Han was seen as the classic... Han was her dad. Han was seen as the classic tiger dad. He was just very intense. Um I feel like that's common with people who mm-hmm. like work really hard to give their kids a good life. Then it's yeah. like you better the expectations are like you better not ruin this. I worked yeah. really hard for you to have this, and mm-hmm. then you have a lot of pressure on you to of, be that like perfect to be that child. perfect child because your parents work so like yeah. At that point, you can't waste your life away and which, not do anything. Of course, you shouldn't waste your life, but also that pressure kind of makes you self destruct sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. Uh, yeah, classic tiger dad, and Bic was his reluctant accomplice, so his wife was just kind of doing whatever he went with. She kind of followed his lead. Yep. The pans picked Jennifer up when classes ended each day and monitored her extracurricular, extracurricular activities very closely. They never permitted her to date boys while attending high school or to attend high school dances out of fear that these activities would distract her from her academic stuff. Yeah, so they're... 
Makes Hel- sense. Helicopter parents. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer wasn't permitted to attend any parties during the time her parents believed she was attending university. At the age of 22, she had never gone to a club, been drunk, visited a friend's house, or gone on vacation without her family. Jennifer and her friends reportedly... Oh, wait. Did you name this story? Uh, uh, I named it Psychologic Interrogation. Ooh. Yeah. It's a, about that, mostly. Ooh. Which, once I'm fu- done with the video, you should definitely watch... I mean, once I'm done with the story, <laughs> you should definitely, at some point, watch the video. Oh, I will. It's very interesting. Sure. It's, like an hour, it's like an hour and 40 minutes long. It's, like, super long. But, like, it, it was good. It was mm-hmm. just interesting. So, yeah, she was super strict, and her friends reported uh, reportedly regarded this upbringing as restrictive and greatly oppressive. Despite her parents' high expectations and that Jennifer had received good grades in lower school, so I guess they say lower school, but I guess that would technically be like elementary, middle school. Mm-hmm. Throughout high school, her grades were somewhat average in the 70% range, except for music. She was really good at music. Multiple times she forgot report cards. She forged report cards. I forgot. She forged. (laughs) I was like, I forgot report cards too. Uh, Multiple times she forged report cards using false templates to show her parents that she had received straight A's when she had not. I knew people that did that, and I don't know. Like, that's so much work. It is a lot of work, but I mean, like my parents, for example, if I would have done that, they would have believed it because they wouldn't, like, look into it. No, no, for sure. But I just, like... I'm very impressed with people who are that resourceful. I, one time, I would skip school a lot in high school, and I, and I think now they, like, double-check this, but they would call your parents Which is funny, because I feel like out of the two of us, you are the, like, rule follower. Uh, I wasn't like that in high, I would say you, you senior would. year, I was more, like, straight-edged, but, like, junior to, uh, freshman to junior year, I was, like, But your not. parents are pretty strict, and you, like... But I think that's why. ...kind of follow their rules as far as, like, I curfew. think that's why, though, I was, like, more, like... I felt like maybe at school I had more of, like, a like a freedom, almost, because at home I really didn't. Yeah. And so maybe that just made me do that, but... So, uh, when you miss school, they obviously call your parents and say, like, hey, like, they didn't show... Like, I think it's, like, if you miss three classes or more, at least it was then, like, they would, they would call your parents and... Oh, yeah, that's happened to me. But (laughs) I went to the office and said, hey, my mom changed her phone number, and then I just gave them my phone number, so then they would just call (laughs) me when I missed class. Oh, my gosh. Um, But, yeah. But, anyways, yeah, Jennifer would forge her report cards. Uh, Where did I leave off on? Oh, when Jennifer failed calculus class in 12th grade, uh, Ryerson University rescinded her early admission. As she could not bear to be perceived as a failure, she began to lie to those she knew, including her parents, and pretended she was attending university. Instead, I know. Instead, she sat in cafes, taught as a piano instructor, and worked in a restaurant to earn money. In order to maintain the act, Jennifer told her parents she had won scholarships, later falsely claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. She's going all out with these lies. That's that affects you when you're like mm-hmm. that deep in your own lies. You're like stacking them on. You almost and forget then, like. And then you have more lies to cover that lie, and then mm-hmm. it just oh no. Yep. She went to the extent of purchasing secondhand textbooks and watching videos oh related gosh. to pharmacology in order to create notebooks full of fake class notes that she would show her parents. <laughs> So like so much work. You might as well have just gone to school at this point. Is self educating, so she probably learned a ton. I know, right? She had to. Jennifer also requested permission from her parents to stay near their campus with a friend throughout the week. 
She was actually staying with her boyfriend, Daniel oh, Chi Kwong Wong, whom she, had met, <laughs> whom she had met in high school. He was of mixed Chinese and Filipino ancestry, and he resided in Ajax, which is a small town in Ontario. Ontario, whatever. He also worked at a pizza restaurant. (laughs) Oh, that is important information. Yep. (laughs) Daniel once was a student at Mary Ward and transferred to Cardinal Carter Academy in North York, Toronto, due to low grades. I don't know these schools, but I'm assuming it's just Mary Ward was probably a bigger school and then this other one was smaller. Right, yeah. He later also studied at York University. He was an active marijuana dealer. While pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, Jennifer told her parents that she had started working as a volunteer at the hospital for sick children. So her parents were very uh, wanted to go wanted her to go into the medical field. Like they yep. were like very like you need to do this. Uh, Han and Bick soon became suspicious when they realized she did not have a hospital ID badge or uniform. On one occasion, Bick followed her daughter to work and quickly discovered her deception. In a state of shock, Han wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house, but her mother persuaded him to allow her to stay. As she had not completed high school due to failing calculus, she eventually began working to finish high school completely and was later encouraged by her parents to apply to university. She was, however, forbidden to contact Daniel or go any or to go anywhere except for her piano teaching job. Nevertheless, though, she and Daniel spoke secretly during this period. By the time that Jennifer was 24, Daniel had grown tired of trying to pursue a relationship with her, obviously, as Jennifer was so daunted and restricted by her parents that she lived at home and only met him in secret. Daniel began to date another young woman whom he soon fell in love with. Jennifer quickly invented a new story and told Jan that a man had entered her house showing what appeared to be a police badge. She then told him that several men had rushed in right after and gang raped her. After this, she insisted that a bullet was mailed to her, telling Daniel that it was sent from his new girlfriend. So she basically just wanted to... Like a compulsive liar. Yeah, and she just wanted him to kind of leave her and come back to to her, which worked. Right after this, Jennifer and Daniel were soon back in contact daily. On November 8th, 2010, at approximately 9.30 p.m., police received a phone call from Jennifer screaming that three men had broken into the home into their home with guns. During the phone call, you can hear Jennifer's dad, Han, screaming and Jennifer frantically telling him she was on the phone with police. When police arrived, they found Jennifer tied to the stairs railing upstairs and both of her parents in the basement. Her mother, Bick, was dead and her dad still was still alive but had bullets in his head and in his oh. neck. Um, Han... Pan, her dad, was treated at Markham Stoufville Hospital before being moved to a trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto by aircraft. The evening after the murder, Jennifer underwent her first interview with the police. Her recounting of the story was basically that she was upstairs watching TV and talking on the phone with a friend when she heard her mother yell to her father. She said it wasn't like a crazy scream, it was just loud, and so she heard it and turned the TV down. Her brother wasn't home at this time. Um, She shortly heard footsteps coming up the stairs, and men came into her room asking her where there was money. So she helped them look for her dad's wallet in her parents' room, which were also upstairs. She said they tied her upstairs after this and went back downstairs. The men were yelling at her parents asking for where her mom's purse was, and she recalls telling her mom to not stand up so she wouldn't get hurt, 
So apparently her mom was just like nervous and just kept get, like getting up and she right. was yelling her to just stay down. The men took her parents to the basement. She says she remembers hearing her mom ask the men to let her daughter come with them because at this point she was still tied up there. And while she was upstairs, she heard two gunshots and then her mom screaming in pain. She then heard the men come out of the basement and said they had to leave, that t- that time had run out. That's when she called the right. police. And Convenient. They yeah. left her life. Sure. That's when she called the police, and while on the phone, that's when she also heard her dad screaming. Yeah. Um, so during this investigation, this is kind of where my notes become scattered. During the first interview, there were a couple of things that um, the investigator kind of noticed in her story. So one of the things was she said that at one point, one of the men had opened the fridge in their kitchen. Okay. So she, said the, she said the entire time they tried to keep it as dark as possible. So the main lights were not on, like downstairs or upstairs. So she said at one point, one of the men had opened the fridge so that he could get light to see where like money was. Like, so you just get to see light. But they said like, this is a, like, psychologically, if you were trying to recall like something that was very traumatic to you you would just blurt out I, and he opened the fridge and I, like he just opened the fridge you wouldn't say oh he opened the fridge the so that he could see the light like why he did that you wouldn't say that especially the day after your mom just died and all yeah. that stuff happened um because the logic comes from if you thought that up yeah why exactly like why would you go into detail like that you don't know that that's why they're doing that yep um so then the other thing that was weird was she said that she was tied up but then the investigator asked how she called 911 and yeah. she was like oh i uh like she like paused for a second and she for the most part was looking down the entire time she was talking to him but at this point she had like looked up almost like looking for his like reassurance of like oh this like makes sense right and like kept going on with her story so that was a little bit weird so those were the two things that were mainly weird with that She was interviewed again two days later, and then there was even weirder things that happened in that interview. Um, One of the things was she would be very... um, So they basically just kept asking her to retell the story to just find flaws at this point. Poke holes in the story. Yep. And so while she's retelling it, she starts getting really emotional when she like talks about specific things like oh when they when I heard my mom scream and like all of this stuff she gets really emotional but the moment that the investigator interrupts her and asks her like an even more detailed question she immediately like snapped out snaps out of the emotional and answers like completely like she's normal thinking, yeah. because she's thinking and so they said it's very hard for your brain to both fake an emotion and also react to like a question so you, it's really hard to do those at the same time. And so they realized that was, like, one of the things that they said was, um, she was saying, like, when I first heard my mom call out to my dad, she started getting really emotional. And then he stopped her and said, um, what exactly did she say? Did she say it in Vietnamese? And then she completely stops being emotional. And she says, yeah, they said specifically this. And, like, she says it in Vietnamese. But, like, she just stops being emotional altogether. Very weird. Um, she gets, she got, she got super emotional the moment that she was able to like tell the story for like longer than 30 seconds. So like, as she kept telling it, if she wasn't getting interrupted, she would get more emotional. But the moment she'd get interrupted, it was like a restart almost. It builds up to the emotion. Exactly. So that was really weird. 
she started getting super defensive about things that didn't match up so like when she realizes that she like didn't say the same thing in the first interview she kept being like oh no i i said that before i clarified that before and she starts just getting super defensive obviously very big red flag um yeah because who cares yeah oh one of the other things that she did was while she he was asking her questions like for example they asked her there was she said that there were three men and she obviously didn't said she didn't know their names or whatever so they kept referring to them as number one number two number three and at first in the first interview she had told him told the investigator that number two was wearing a hoodie and then the second interview when he asks her she says he was wearing a vest and then she noticed notices that he like kind of like looked at her and she was like oh no a hoodie and it literally reminds me of like if you're trying to study for a quiz and you're like say something and then like you realize that it's wrong and you're like oh wait no uh this is what i meant this like, is exactly the problem i have with the adnan <coughs> case because interviewing jay he would say something and then and it's just recording he would say something and you'd hear like tapping on the table or whatever and he would completely change his answer to match with the old so answer. weird it's like they told him yeah like, no. like it's you can so tell yeah um one of the other things that she said is when she helped them find her dad's wallet in the room the first interview she said exactly uh $1,100 was stolen in the first interview and then the second interview he asks her how much was stolen and she says a few hundred dollars but not really sure and so he's like well you seem definitive about 1100 in the first interview so where did that number come from yeah and so she gets super puzzled and like they they just keep going because they're like okay well clearly that was a lie she they also asked her, one of the few things that she actually did that worked out was the investigator asked her to imitate exactly how she was positioned and how she reached for her phone while she was tied up and so she said that she was tied up to the railing by her right arm, and then she her hands were also tied behind her back. And so, does that make sense? So she yes. had her hands behind her back, and that was tied, yeah. and then she also had the arm tied to the railing. Got it. So her hands weren't tied to the railing, apparently. So she said... Why would someone tie someone up like that instead of I just... I don't know. But she said she was tied up that way, and so when she imitated, like, grabbing her phone... She uh, reached with her right hand, which would have made sense because it would have been, like, physically impossible to do that with the left hand if your right arm was tied up. Yeah. If that makes sense. So that was the only few, one of the few things that she did that actually was like, okay, that actually would have made sense. But they were just like, she could have just, like, she could have just done this to, like, like, practice this to see if it would work. But, so yeah, that was the only thing in her favor. Um, She also said that her dad, she knew her dad wasn't dead. But before she heard, like, by the time she heard the gunshots, she said she knew for sure. But in her phone call to the police, when she hears her daddy yelling, she, like, in the phone call, you can see that she's reacting to, like, not even knowing he was still alive, if that makes sense. Right. So that was another flaw. Um, One of the things the investigator did to, um, to kind of figure out more information is... Um, after asking her for like the story he almost acts as like her therapist and he starts asking about her life and mm-hmm. and how why, if she resents her parents for like being so strict on her um, and she just replies with I made a choice I made my choice to stay with my parents and that she loved them and so he kind of was just going into the emotions of it all 
um, trying to see if he can get anything out of her. Mm-hmm. Kind of, uh, they they refer to it a lot as like the the instead of asking them like oh did you do this kind of thinking in your mind why would they do this and then asking mm-hmm. those kind of questions. So that's he did that a lot. The he feel, he starts finally asking her specific questions like asking her if she's lying and uninvolved. Why would they try to kill her parents and not her? Says that if she's... And he specifically says, if you're lying about this, this is the most cold-blooded thing he's ever heard. Which probably is not true, but he's probably just make, trying to make her feel like, oh, shoot. Kind I mean, of it's pretty cold-blooded, <clears throat> too, though, to be able to turn around oh, and, for like, sure. fake emotions when you need to. Like, that's your parents, and you're just kind of like... Yeah. Um, so, he's he also asks her specifically, is... He says, is this an evil plot you came up with? And she looks like him straight in the eye and says, oh my gosh, no. Like, she's like super still faking this. The, he reassures her, not reassures her, but he says like, if this, you did this, it would be very easy to find out, like, to find out that you did this because there has been a lot of flaws already in your story. Kind of just scaring her, like there's no right. point in keeping going, like we kind of already know. And so he says that, um, he leaves for for a time where he which he does a lot, which I've heard already that investigators do that a lot mm-hmm. just to make people feel uncomfortable. Yep. So he leaves for like thirty minutes, I think, and then when he comes back, she's standing up and pacing, and she's like, she she kept saying, "You really scared me. I'm really scared," and so ob- another obvious flag. And at the end, he kind of um, he ends it with saying like, "Hey, I just want to let you know I'm on your side and I'm doing everything I can to find your mom's killer." I'm trying to help you, and if you have, if you really have no like part in this, you're our only link. So like, you're our only help, kind of thing. Kind of trying to make it seem like we're doing this for your mom. And so, so is the dad still alive? I'll get there <laughs> because they could easily be like, "Hey, your dad said it was you," and see so what she does. her dad had bullets in his brain, and he had shattered neck bones. Okay. And so they had already told him. Um, told them that even if he he was in a coma and even if he had woken up he probably wouldn't be a reliable did witness because of brain damage i don't think they did which could have been another way to kind of get her to say something but but yeah that he was in the hospital at this point and he still wasn't awake okay. he says um she, oh she she ended it telling him i know all things are pointing negatively the things you're saying to me is getting to me and so she kind of is making it seem like i I kind of know, like, I kind of know what you're, I think she, she at this point could tell that they were kind of thinking her as more of a suspect, not a witness. Yeah. And so she's kind of like, I feel like I know what you're doing to me. Um, so but she's also like trying to be a victim in it. Like, oh yeah, you're really, you're really scaring me. You're rattling me. Like mm-hmm. maybe she can put it off on that as why she's acting strangely. Not yeah. you're catching me in my lies. Yep. Yep. So after this investigation or interview, she was monitored heavily because obviously they kind of had suspicion already. Right. Um, at her mom's funeral, she didn't show any emotion. She looked down the entire time. She didn't seem like she was even like there, which obviously people grieve in different ways. So yep. technically, that's hard to judge. Yeah, you can't really go off of that. Yeah. But a day before her mom's funeral, her dad woke up from his coma and he remembered every detail about what happened. Which is very, like, miraculous. Like, because usually you wouldn't right. if, you, if that had happened to you. His story was completely different than Jen's. He said that she said that she was never tied up at any point and was walking freely talking to the men. This interview obviously was done in secret, so she didn't know that this happened. 
He was able to talk to her on the phone, but he was told to pretend that he had amnesia and didn't know anything about that night. He asked, so he asked if she thought maybe her boyfriend had anything to do with it because he said, I never liked that guy. Like, did he have anything to do with this? Um, because he was mad that you couldn't be with him or something like that. She obviously right. said no. Um, lawyer, so, there, so there were men, according to him, too. Yeah, like he, he says there were men in the house. There were three men in the house. The question was, did she, was she involved or not? But, and if one of them was her boyfriend. Exactly. Right. Yep. Uh, lawyers couldn't really use anything that the dad had as like concrete evidence because because of everything that happened to him medically like defense could say like oh he's just not like there like he had a lot of brain damage and is kind of making this all up so they couldn't really use it to help the case uh, then we get to the third investigation so third interview it was about a week and a half after this happened and this time it was a different investigator from the first two his name was William Goats? Gets? G-O-E-T-Z. I'm sorry, I'm not pronouncing that right. But um, he kind of took the investigation in two phases. His first phase was building trust and rapport slowly. So he uh, was asking her about ice skating, like laughing, saying that he was trying to relate to it, like saying he used to teach music too and all this stuff. It was very, like, it felt very warm and she, you could see her like slowly opening up. But then he does certain things to kind of start making her feel uncomfortable. So they first start off in a bigger room where she's like, just, it just looks like a conference room normally. Mm -hmm. And he goes, um, sorry, we're having like some tech issues. For some reason, my computer's not working here. We're going to move to the other room. And they move to a way smaller room where her, her chair is like right against the wall. And like, he's standing right, he's sitting like right in front of it. You can tell that it just feels darker and like more like uncomfortable i get that so they do that and then his second phase was just quickly confront like go from kind of make it a jarring like, like you're kind of making the person comfortable and then and it's like boom they're kind of safe with you and yeah. have a rapport and then you switch on them so very it catches quickly them. yep so that's kind of what his thing was he tries to bring up how her parents were controlling to rationalize what she did so he keeps saying like i totally understand like that's yeah. a lot of pressure all this stuff. it's like the chris- it's tough to live up to that expectation yeah. the chris watts case where they're like mm-hmm. was she too controlling for you yep. like did she do something to the kids and that's why you had to kill her exactly so he was kind of doing that um the uh, oh, yeah, he just kept going as long as possible. He literally would just have her recite the story, and then once she was done, do it again. Once she was done, do yeah. it again, just to kind of make her tired, to see if she would just get exhausted and be over it. So he kept doing that. He starts using fear. He tells her that he has a ton of resources that already proves she's lying, so there's no point in continuing. He makes up that they have infrared satellites to, that they can see through houses and see where people are in the house. So I he's just like, feel like it would have been so much easier to say, hey, your dad said you did it, like you were involved. I don't know if there's like a reason why they couldn't do that. Like I don't know. I don't know. I guess because if she wasn't the one who acted, like if she oh, did but go also, along with it. Oh, I don't think that, because if she did have something to do with it and they told her, hey, your dad is telling us this, it might make the dad feel unsafe because he's like, well, if she was trying to kill me, like, But also, why would... if she's going along with it in front of her parents, the dad has nothing solid to point to in, oh, she, she shot my wife. Like, there's yeah. nothing she's doing. Yeah, exactly. Because it seems like she really was trying to, like, play the part of mm-hmm. like oh these people broke in whatever yeah so you can't really prove technically that right. she didn't hold a gun like hold right. a gun to him so 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the exact reason, but I, I, I guess some parts it makes sense. But, but yeah, he lied about technology. Obviously, there are no infrared satellites that can actually do that, but she obviously didn't know that. Uh, I don't yeah. know if that's legal in the U.S., but the the um, it specifically said that it was legal in Canada to do that. Like, you can lie about stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, you can lie. Okay. That's I didn't why, know that's to what, what I was saying is they, they could say your dad. Yeah. You can absolutely lie and just see what they say. And, and that's yeah. why, too, if you're ever in that situation, like, if they're saying something that's just not true, like, hold your ground. Don't be like, mm-hmm. oh. Like, because they'll try to get in your head and, like, which is why you have a lot of false confessions, too, yeah. because yeah. there's people that have said they're being interrogated, and it's it's so long and it's so whatever that they, so they start to think, like, did, did I, I do just it? do something yeah. and then not? I, this, this intense interrogation can either be in this story really well to where you actually do get them to say right, something. Right, there's a fine line. Or it's it can, like, fine line. Mentally... And there's a lot of adverse opinions as far as, like, this is effective, but mm-hmm. it's also really risky because if it the is. person isn't guilty like are mm-hmm. you just soliciting a, a, like a confession out of them yeah by means the good of just thing, mental distress not like they the good thing though is if you get the person at least to confess then you most often like can find more evidence like in this case once she does confess they yeah, do find more evidence sure. that proves it completely but I mean, it is a risk. But like if you like, look you at like know. Brendan Dassey making a murder, like yeah. they just convinced him that oh, he yeah. did something. And I'm not saying either way whether he did or not. The way that they got a confession out of him though was wrong, mm-hmm. especially when they're young. Like clear. you're like, well, and he had like, and he, he had, had issues. De- mental delays, like yeah. deficiencies, and he he wasn't he was very easily convinced of things, and it, it, you can see him like struggling with like you're telling me this happened, okay, I think this happened, like, it's just, it's and that's lot. on, that's on law enforcement to pick up on that, and yeah. realize, like, Ooh. yeah, it also, it's also to, like, who you have doing it, because obviously, like, mm-hmm. there are bad people everywhere, and so, like, some of these investigators could just be like, I don't, I just want to well, get Well, and, everyone. I mean, at the end of the day, I think sometimes you have such a opinion on what happened that you're just trying to fit everything into, into that. that yeah and you're not seeing a person in front of you that you're talking to you're you're seeing as them this as a is potential. my challenge to convince you yeah. or to get you to confess to something i know you exactly did. that's what i'm saying so and there not, has to be people that that feel that are not yeah. feeling like and okay, they're what's just, just like because they are taught to trust their gut and whatever yeah but you also have to be discerning and you have to be able to say i i missed the mark here and i was wrong exactly like, you can't yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely a risky, but I, yeah. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Uh, oh, he he uses a tactic by lowering the gauge of admission. So instead of saying like you plan to kill your parents, he says more like you were involved, right? Like you were involved in this somehow, mm-hmm. right? Or you knew before the night that this was going to happen, kind of thing. Um, she doesn't respond to most of the stuff that he asks on purpose, obviously, other than things that aren't like incriminating. Um, but what one thing she kept saying over and over again is, what happens to me? What happens to me? I wanted it to stop. What happens to me? She kept saying that. But she he, wanted what to stop? I don't know. That's just what's just her last saying. name? Pan? P-A-N? Are you looking up what she looks like? <laughs> she was young. She was 24 when this happened. Um, oh, she looks 12. Yeah, she looks very young. Little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she doesn't respond to anything. 
she finally at one point says that they were supposed to just kill her and she sticks to that she doesn't change her story she says that she called someone to come and kill her because she failed at her suicide so apparently she said she didn't want to stay she didn't want to be alive anymore um and she failed at her suicide so she thought that calling somebody to be able to come and kill her would be the easiest way which is bs but (laughs) yeah she gives the investigator multiple fake names uh says that she got a number from someone that would be this type of person to do this kind of like a hitman but instead she just said she called them and had wanted him to come and kill her um at this point there the fake names that she gives the investigator knows that she's already lying about the fake names but he's like i'm just gonna let her keep talking until maybe something else comes out yeah so she has this she completes she like makes up this whole other story like off the bat that they only came in here and they were supposed to kill me and said that and he asked her like do you um did you give them any special instructions and she was like no i just said that make sure no one else is around so they were like well then why would they kill your parents and leave and she kept saying like i don't know i don't know i don't know why they would do that that's what i'm trying to figure out that's what she kept saying over and over again so she said i don't know (laughs) um Jennifer was yeah. finally arrested after this five-hour interrogation on, on November 22nd, 2010. Her confession of being involved was enough for the arrest. Here's what actually happened. After Jennifer and Daniel started talking again, they came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman for $10,000 to kill her parents, calculating that she would then inherit about $500,000. They planned to move in together right after this. Daniel connected Jennifer with a man, Lenford Roy Crawford, Jamaican-born, whom he called and nicknamed Homeboy and gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so that she could contact Crawford without using her usual cell phone. Crawford contacted another man named Eric Sean Cardi, who in turn contacted another man, David Milvagano. Oh, that was my fridge. Sorry. <laughs> Cardi, <laughs> Cardi was later found responsible for an unrelated murder and a journalist stated that Cardi was a repeat violent offender. Okay. Um, Mil- I'm just going to... David. I'm going to call him David because I can't pronounce his last name. David was arrested at the Jane Finch Mall in North York, Toronto on April 14, 2011. Cardi was arrested at the prison he was held in. Uh, apparently he was already in prison when this happened. On April 15, 2011. And Daniel was arrested on April 26, 2011. Daniel's her boyfriend. I wonder how that works if they arrest you while you're in. <laughs> like they bring I you I know, that's so weird. Like they arrested. Because they, they have to process you for yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's so be. awkward. It's funny. Um, I mean, it's so, horrible, but... Yeah. But yeah, Daniel was arrested while he was working. Crawford was the final suspect arrested, entering custody on May 4th, 2011. The trial of Jennifer and her accomplices began on March 19, 2014 in Newmarket and continued for 10 months. All of them pleaded not guilty to the charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. At the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of the mobile device movements and text message traffic, including over 100 messages sent between Jen and Daniel in the six hours prior to the killing. Further evidence centered around the atypical nature of the break-in, robbery, shootings, and irregularities in Jennifer's testimony. Jen's obsession with Daniel, her lack of true emotion, and a confession regarding the attack and recognition of the trauma she underwent were also detailed. Jennifer, Daniel, David, and Crawford were all convicted on December 13, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Original Cardi, the other man, was tried with the other perpetrators, 
Edward Sapiano, Cardi's lawyer, fell ill, so around the summer of 2014, his case, his case was declared a mistrial. In December 2015, Cardi received an 18-year sentence after pleading guilty to conspiring to commit murder. He will be eligible for parole after nine years. According to Cardi, he did not wish to subject Han Pan to another criminal trial. So those three men were there at the time. Daniel wasn't actually there, but he was obviously convicted oh, for, okay. for coming up with the plan. Murder for hire, yeah. Yep. Jennifer Pan was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years for the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father. Jennifer's father and brother requested a court order that banned her from ever contacting members of her surviving family again. Despite the objections of the defense lawyers, the judge filed the order. Jennifer is also barred from ever contacting Daniel again. As of 2016, Jennifer was serving her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Ontario. Daniel, previously held in Ontario, was at Collins Bay Institution. Um, All the other men are here, blah, 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 blah. I'm skipping over that. I don't know why I kept that in there. (laughs) Um, Cardi was the only one that in 2018 was transferred to a federal prison, and he shortly died in his cell right after. So all of them, except Cardi, who passed, are currently in jail and have no are sentenced to life with no chance of parole wow so that is the story of jennifer pan the cold-blooded um but it's interesting it it brings up this dilemma of i mean obviously um the case we talked about with gypsy rose her mom was another level of abusive mm -hmm. But you have a case like that where it's so clear that everyone feels for Gypsy. Mm-hmm. And then you have something like this where it's a little bit uh, more confusing of, yes, it is a level of, I think, emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. And I hate to, like, obviously talk ill of the dead. But it was very controlling. Oh, very yeah. Very coercive control. Very, um, they didn't allow her to be an adult and kind of independent of them she's in her 20s and you're you have so much control over someone you're following them yeah and so then it's like everyone's so quick to immediately be like oh she's cold-blooded which her response to the the response is cold-blooded yeah yes absolutely but i do think that like it makes me wonder what happened behind the scenes that might have led to her getting to that point where yeah, maybe she suppressed her emotions because she, I don't I don't know I I think in some families like emotion is frowned upon mm-hmm. and so maybe it was something where she didn't know how to express, to express her emotions. It, yeah. Well, it's she just, it's interesting to think she about. She and many times has had said like I, there was no like you couldn't argue like there was no yeah. like it just was what it is and I yeah. can relate to that like yeah but. I mean, I don't know the details of... But we talked... Like, we talked about it. It's uh, lots of different variables mm-hmm. that lead a person exactly. to this. And to say that Gypsy Rose had, uh, like, was given way more variables, and mm-hmm. so it makes sense. And then to look at someone yeah, you like Jennifer know. and say, oh, she shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You have no idea what the other variables were, so yep. it's... Without the full picture, it's hard to, like... It, it almost feels like sometimes we're sitting here and being like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, mm-hmm. that person's evil. Oh, that person's a monster. Yeah. Oh, that's... I think what makes it worse for me, though, is, is like... Because if you felt like you couldn't get out, you were trapped, whatever it was, and you did this, okay, obviously you shouldn't kill anybody. That's not mm-hmm. your decision. Whatever. But 
once you do like the Gypsy Rose case, she acknowledged like, shoot, I did this. Like I got caught, yes. you know. And I think and that Jennifer till the day she was in jail was still like, nope, I didn't do anything. Like yeah. it's like the fact that you still are carrying on this narrative. It's like which is interesting. To, like I think if she was remorseful and if she had yeah. laid out what had happened, I think a lot more people would be understanding. Yeah, they wouldn't agree that she should have done that. Of course, but they would be like, okay, that that lines up just like exactly. with Gypsy Rose it, it makes sense I think that's why you have more empathy for mm-hmm. her because it's like well yeah when so. she has she has a lot more um a pattern of individually being inclined to lie and be mm-hmm. deceptive and yep. kind of has built patterns that lead up to and it just kind of yeah. escalated it's just interesting to me to think it's about very because there's certain people certain cases I hear where I kind of empathize and and can see the perspective of the person that Mm -hmm. has done this crime and then there's other cases where it's very hard to like to like feel like feel that yeah put yourself in that position and and think like that it's it's just interesting very interesting that was a good case i feel like i heard it a long time ago but i didn't remember a lot of it so it was very very i had never heard about it but yeah yeah super interesting good job i'm ready for your story (laughs) So not to just immediately jump into how to pronounce something. But, well, <laughs> I first, feel like that's the common thing that both of us I know, do. People listening are oh. like, shut up and just say it. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine is titled Hush Sisters. Whoa. And um, immediately, so do you say Caribbean or Caribbean? Uh, okay, it's technically supposed to be Caribbean, Caribbean. but Pirates of the Caribbean and the, made that a thing. The filmmakers say Caribbean. Yeah. But yes, Caribbean, okay. So, June and Jennifer were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants, Gloria... You have a Jennifer, too? Yep. That's so funny. Yeah. I was, like, thinking that. I was like, ooh. That's funny. Um, uh, Gloria and Aubrey Gib- Gibbons. The Gibbons family moved from uh, Barbados, Barbados... Barbados. Sorry. Barbados to the United Kingdom in the early 1960s. Okay. Gloria was a housewife, and Aubrey worked as a technician for the Royal Air Force. Okay. The couple had a daughter, Greta, born in 1957, and a son, David, born in 1959. In 1960, Aubrey went to stay with a relative in Coventry and -hmm. soon qualified as a staff technician. Gloria followed with Greta and David several months later. On uh, April 11, 1963, Gloria gave birth to twins at a military hospital in Aden, Yemen where their father had been deployed. So they're kind of moving all over the place, having kids. So uh, father deployed, so he was in the Army? Air Force, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that makes sense. Why he was a technician, a but yeah, he was... Okay. Um, the family soon relocated again, first to England, and in 1974 to Haverford West... Okay. Haver- Haverford West? That reminds me of Tom Haverford. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Wales, which is really pretty. Um, the twin sisters were inseparable, and their language, a sped-up Creole, which is oh, uh, yeah, like Haitian, mm-hmm. made it difficult for people to understand them. So Interesting. It was very sped-up. Mm-hmm. People didn't really understand what they were saying. Oh, gosh. Um, have you heard? No, you, but I haven't heard anything about this. Well, maybe once you get into it, no. But I feel like you would Based have, off like, your no. title, I, I, I'm kind of maybe getting okay, the vibe, cool. but... 
Yeah, pro- you probably know this. Um, as the only black children in their community, they were ostracized at school. Hmm. This proved to be traumatic for the twins, eventually causing their school administrators to, di- to dismiss them early each day so that Aww. they might avoid intense bullying, That's which so is sad. just so sad. Their language became even more idiosyncratic at this time. Soon it was... Um, impossible to understand for others so they had basically their own secret language that no one could understand that's like sad but also kind of cool to have with a sister uh their language qualified as an example of cryptophagia Hmm. which is the phenomenon of language developed by twins that only the two can understand interesting the twins simultaneous actions often mirrored each other so there was it was just Almost like the same person in two bodies. They hmm. just really were. I have heard of just like the vibe. Yeah, this is like, like the that. most extreme yeah. I've heard of this happening. They became increasingly reserved and eventually spoke to no one except each other and their younger sister Rose. Okay. So they Greta, learned. they didn't care about. I forget <laughs> so their brother's David. name. David, they didn't care about. The girls continued to attend school, although they refused to read or write. Interesting. In 1974, which it makes school very hard. <laughs> like yeah, you're not reading no or writing. In. You're listening. Yeah. In 1974, a medic administering vaccinations at the school noted their impassive behavior and notified a school psychologist. The twins began seeing a succession of therapists who tried to unsuccessfully to get them to communicate with others. They were sent to separate boarding schools in an attempt to break their isolation. Like with each other that's kind of sad though um yeah but i understand you're trying to like you're trying to they're figure so out. entangled yeah. and dependent on each other you're trying to kind mm-hmm. of have them find their own identities mm-hmm. they're just looking for anything at this point the pair became um catatonic which just means super passive and just kind of distant mm-hmm. and entirely withdrawn when parted so when they were away from each other they yeah, just I mean, it makes sense if you're that relying on each other correct when they were reunited, the two spent several years isolating themselves in their bedroom, engaging in elaborate plays with dolls. Oh, gosh. So it's just kind of the, the two of them in the world, and mm-hmm. that's it. They created many plays and stories in a sort of soap opera style, reading some of them aloud and on tape as gifts for their sister Rose. Okay. Inspired by a pair of gifted diaries... So they were given diaries on Christmas of 1979. They began their writing careers. They sent away for a mail order course in creative writing. How old were they at this point? Um, 1979, and they were... Hold on, let me find... They were born in the 60s, I think, right? That's what you said? Yeah, 1963. Okay, so they were like 13, 13, 15... 11? 1974... Oh, no, that's when the vaccinations were. 79, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, so they were teens. Yep. So, mail order course and creative writing, and each kept an extensive diary and wrote a number of stories, poems, and novels. Okay. So they were very talented in this. Set primarily in the United States, and particularly in Malibu, California, the stories involve young men and women who exhibit strange and often criminal behavior. Okay. June wrote a novel titled Pepsi Cola Addict, in which the high school hero is seduced by a teacher, then sent away to a reformatory where a guard makes a play for him. 
The two girls pooled together their unemployment benefits in order to get the novel published by Vanity Press. Their other attempts to publish novels and stories were unsuccessful. In Jennifer's The Pugilist, a physician is so eager to save his child's life that he kills the family dog to obtain its heart for a transplant. The dog's very dark. Yeah, but it's also like very original. Very specific, yeah. The dog's spirit lives on in the child and ultimately has its revenge against the father. Oh, gosh. Jennifer also wrote, wrote Discomania, the story of a young woman who discovers that the atmosphere of a local disco incites patrons to insane violence. She followed up with The Taxi Driver's Son, a radio play called Postman and Postwoman, and several short, short stories. So they're just creating. Very creative. <laughs> That's all they're doing with their time. June uh, is considered to be an outstanding writer. Um, art by self-taught or... Oh, I'm sorry. And... I said outstanding. An outsider writer. So outsider writers are art by self-taught or naive art makers. Typically those labeled as outsider artists have little or no contact with the mainstream art world Hmm. or art institutions. In many cases, their work is discovered only after their death. Often outsider art illustrates extreme mental states, unconventional ideas, or elaborate fantasy worlds. So it's actually kind of highly regarded in the art community because it's it's kind of like uncut gems like yeah kind of rough around the edges yeah very um you're not trained in this world you're Mm -hmm. you just have it in you yeah yeah well whether you're whether you're like whether you're you think you are or not but if you are in the art world and you are looking at other people's art you are being influenced Mm -hmm. by all of it at some point or inspired by things like it it, you are and so if completely taking that out of it it's just coming straight from your brain like that's yes and you're just brilliant yeah you're not reading writing interacting at all unless you have your diary and you're writing these um, this i mean amazingly detailed yeah they're very dark but like i mean think about edgar Allan poe and he's one of the biggest poets so exactly um so this case achieved notoriety due to which we'll get to what the case is but Mm -hmm. achieved notoriety due to newspaper coverage by journalist marjorie (laughs) wallace of the sunday times wallace actually taylor swift's grandmother imagine i know that's why i paused i was like (laughs) but you don't know the reference guys Taylor Swift just released an insanely amazing also, new album. I just want to say, Nobody, No Crime is our unofficial uh, theme song. <laughs> every time I listen to that, though, I almost get sad because I'm like, this would be so perfect. I know. So just every time you listen to our podcast, pause, listen to the song, and then come back to it, and okay, it'll be like our. Did you see that why she wrote that song? No. She was inspired because she was watching so much true crime. So <laughs> maybe she'll stumble across this podcast and be like, sure, girl. You can have my song. <laughs> Um, so Wallace wrote a book about the two called The Silent Twins, published in 1986. So after the case, after you see what happened, she then wrote a book. Does it give me vibes, the twins from The Shining? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> Creepy twins. Um, in their teenage years, the twins began experimenting with drugs and alcohol and befriended boys, um, kind of local to them, just some boys who were trouble and encouraged bad behavior. They each lost their virginity to the same boy within a week. Oh, wow. And... Was it just a threesome? (laughs) Nope. Separate occasion. Okay. Um, 
Marjorie said, quote, that created tremendous instability. I mean, yeah. Their relationship, normally tempestuous, was punctuated by murderous fights. Jennifer tried to strangle June with a cord. June tried to drown Jennifer in a river. Oh, my god! The boys abandoned them, and they were left with nothing but mounting rage and terror, end quote. Oh, no. So, it's like they don't know how to express themselves. Yeah, well, they've, they've been all they've, like, they've been all they've had so far. Yeah, so, so there's... Once there's, there's some kind of tension. This um, contrast of you lean in and you're so dependent on each other, you can't function without each other, but then you resent that so much that you have so much anger towards yeah. that person and you just want them gone. It's just extreme in both ways. Yes, it's very extreme. Wow. In 1981, the girls committed a number of crimes, including vandalism, petty theft, and arson, which led to them being admitted at Broadmoor Hospital, a high-security mental health hospital. So June had written in her diary, Can you believe that I'm the arsonist of Havenford West? My lovely, glorious fire, a picture which will live in my mind forever. Oh, what a sinful, evil mind. I know the Lord will forgive me. It's been a long, painful, hard year. Don't I deserve to express my distress? Oh, gosh. And Jennifer wrote in hers, quote, I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? Be free or left to die? End quote. Okay, very dark. We know exactly what she's talking about, but also the way that she words things are very beautiful. Yes. They're both very, very good writers. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I'm very curious about them. But the twins were sentenced to indefinite detention under the Mental Health Act of 1983. They remained at Broadmoor for 11 years. Whoa. And So at this point, they're like, what, in their 30s? They're teens, so like late 20s? Yes. Um, and a lot of what I read didn't go into this, but I've listened to other podcasts about this case and seen some episodes of things that just kind of go into... It's, it's a lot of um, hearsay, mm-hmm. but people who work there say, I mean they would be in separate rooms and you would go, you would like watch the cameras and they would mirror each other. They're That's not seeing crazy. each other, but like they would physically That's do so exactly crazy. the same things. They would, if one, one hurt themselves, the other would instantly feel that pain. Like it was, it was a crazy uh, thing to watch because these, it was not something that they were just faking and just yeah, looking at each like other. You couldn't fake that. They weren't playing it up. It was just weird, That's weird. Crazy. Like, Yeah. June later blamed the lengthy sentence on their selective, selective muteness. Quote, juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years in, in hell because we didn't speak. We lost hope, really. I wrote a letter to the queen asking her to get us out, but we were trapped. End quote. <laughs> so I also feel like there's an elevated level of importance. Like, I'm writing the queen yeah. saying, get us out of here. But she's also probably relying on her persuasive writing mm-hmm. to, to, yeah. Placed on high doses of antipsychotic medications, they found themselves unable to concentrate. Jennifer apparently developed tardive dyskinesia, a neurological disorder resulting in involuntary repetitive movements. Uh-huh. So then June 
uh, Jennifer developed this, but June would mimic that. Wow. But they, they separated them. That's crazy. Um, they tried to have them in the same room at times, but it got too chaotic. Yeah. And so they separated them, and it, it just... They were doing the same things. That's it's, crazy. Everyone who worked there was like, I don't know how to describe it. That's so scary. But you would... You would try to catch them like, like pretending not, yeah. or like not doing the same thing. Yeah, and you would every time they would be doing the same thing. That's crazy. Their medications were uh, apparently adjusted sufficiently to allow them to continue the copious diaries they had begun mm-hmm. in 1980. So they were a little bit more function high mm-hmm. functioning. They were able to join the hospital choir. Oh, that's cool. But they lost most of their interest in creative writing, which is sad. That is sad. According to Wallace, so the journalist that mm-hmm. wrote the book about them, the girls had a long-standing agreement that if one died, the other must begin to speak and live a normal life. Hmm. During their stay in the hospital... So at this point, they still aren't talking to other people? Okay, no. got it. Nope. They began to believe that it was necessary for one of them to die. And after much discussion, Jennifer agreed to make the sacrifice of her life. Oh, gosh. Wallace visited them one last time before they were moved. So they would talk to Wallace. Mm-hmm. And I wonder this why. And this is something that is kind of, like, a little bit confusing because Wallace worked with them and, like, really fought Maybe hard. they just developed, like, a relationship with yeah, them. Yeah, but they, they... So some people... It's hard to know the truth because some some people who worked there said that they talked to them at times, but then other times they didn't. So they might have just not felt comfortable going into depth with other people. But maybe Wallace just. But I also think there's a little bit. I don't think Wallace necessarily, but there's a little bit of people kind of saying, "Oh yeah, I talked to them," but they, you know, Uh, there's no proof of that. And they were they were so dedicated to being. Yeah. Uh, silent and not speaking to anyone but each other mm-hmm. that it's a little bit hard to Wallace worked really hard to like yeah. build a rapport with them and yeah. build that relationship so it makes more sense for her but so she visited them one last time before they were moved to a different facility the conversation was jolly at first Wallace told NPR but then in the middle Jennifer told her Marjorie I'm going to have to die In March of 1993, a month before their 30th birthday, so yeah, they went through their 20s, Mm -hmm. um, they're almost 30, which is crazy to think about that span of your life just being in In this place. The twins were transferred from Broadmoor to the more open Coswell Clinic in Bridgend, Wales. On arrival, Jennifer could not be roused. She was taken to the hospital where she died soon after of acute myocarditis a sudden inflammation of the heart Hmm. so there is no explanation she was not there's no evidence of drugs or poison in her system and her death was just a mystery it's almost like she just decided to die what the heck like no one understands she she literally just she went to sleep on her sister's lap and they got there and she that's weird she was dying and when they went to the hospital she died that's weird At the inquest, June revealed that Jennifer had been acting strangely for about a day before the release. Her speech had been slurring, and she had said that she was dying. So they let them interact with each other. Obviously, Mm -hmm. they just put them in different rooms at times. On the trip to Coswell, she had slept in June's lap with her eyes open. 
Very weird. What the heck? Um, on a visit a few days later, Wallace recounted that June, quote, was in a strange mood. She said, quote, I'm free at last, liberated, and at last Jennifer has given up her life for me, end quote. What the heck? Wait, so did Marjorie never say anything after that last meeting where she said, like, I have to die? Like, she didn't do anything? Oh, you mean she didn't, like, step in? Yeah. I think she just thought she was being silly. Like, uh, not maybe silly, they were just, but dramatic just being dramatic. Already. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, she's probably thinking you're in a secure facility. Yeah. How are you going to do, do that? You're not yeah. really thinking someone's just going to decide to die and just die. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, it's kind of crazy. After Jennifer's death, June gave interviews with Harper's Bazaar and The Guardian. By 2008, she was living quietly and independently near her parents in West Wales. She was no longer monitored by psychiatric services and has been accepted by her community. She sought to put the past behind her. A 2016 interview with her sister, Greta, revealed that the family had been deeply troubled by the girl's incarceration. Incarceration. Why can't I say that word? Incarcerate. <laughs> Incarceration. Oh gosh, what is wrong with me? <laughs> um, sorry. She blamed Broadmoor for ruining their lives and for neglecting Jennifer's health. So they kind of just saw it as neglectful that they weren't able weren't to do more for them. Yeah. And I mean, I understand it. It's kind of a crazy case. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Yeah. But from their perspective, it's like, there's got to be something. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, you're the professionals. Like, you should kind of know what's going on. Yeah. And it also was a time when I feel like now they would have more resources and knowledge of what to do. Mm-hmm. Back then, not as much. That's true. She wanted to file a lawsuit against Broadmoor, but Aubrey and Gloria refused, saying it would not bring Jennifer back. Mm. The pair were the subject of the 1986 television drama, The Silent Twins, broadca- broadcast on BBC Two as part of its screen Screen 2 series, <laughs> and an inside story documentary, Silent Twin, Without My Shadow, which hmm. aired on BBC One in September of 1994. A play based on Wallace's book titled Speechless, depicted um, in London in 2011. The twin story also inspired the 1998 Manic Street Preacher's song, Tsunami, which I've never heard. Interesting. <laughs> The Polish filmmaker, a, a Polish filmmaker, is set to direct a feature film with the twins as a subject, starring Black Panther actress Letitia Wright. Hmm. The film will be an international co-production between the United Kingdom's 42 Management and Production and Poland's um, Mandits, backed by Polish Film Institute. And that's my story. That's, that's so it. crazy. But, uh, do you have, yeah. I want to look up what they look like. Yeah, I don't know if there's any recent pictures of June, but... Oh, yeah, because she's still technically alive. Yeah. That's crazy. Gibbons is their last name. June Gibbons. Oh, there they are. June Gibbons, Jennifer Gibbons. Yeah. It's just crazy. Oh, look at them as kids. Oh, these some of these pictures are the actresses that yeah. played them. But I just, it's just so sad because it's like they were so talented and yeah, um, almost didn't know what to do with that that much creative 
Yeah, Jesus they were Floyd. very talented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this Marjorie, I'm assuming, maybe? Yeah, probably. That's crazy. Yeah, that's my story. And uh, this picture was probably close to when, I yeah. mean, I'm assuming they're in their 20s here, maybe. Yeah, they trusted Marjorie, and they would talk to her, and she that's really so crazy. built a relationship, which is very interesting to me, and I feel like I would enjoy something like that, where you just really want to kind of understand break down those walls that people yeah. built up yeah for sure yeah that's crazy yeah wow that was a very interesting story you had you heard it before no Mm-mm. wow i cool. had it that's crazy <laughs> yep oh that was a good ending hopefully our email gets back up and working i um, forgot about that I just also our our shot of crime email is down but still hopefully, emails. send us emails. That would be cool to like get it back working and have a bunch of emails. So. Yeah, right. That would make us really happy. So maybe do that. Yeah, we. Uh, sorry if you emailed us. Wait, I got an email. Oh my god. What did they say? It just says welcome to. Oh, Anchor. okay. But that's good. That means that we're receiving stuff. I so thought I think you were gonna, back, guys. I thought it was gonna be from Gmail. Like, um, here's what happened. No, but I mean, it came in. So now we're, we should be fine. Okay. Cool, guys. So, yeah, send us emails, shotofcrying at gmail.com. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, I don't believe so. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. When is this episode coming out? This episode is coming out around New Year's. Okay. Well, I hope you guys had a really good yeah, Christmas. Week, it would be the week of New Year's. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, because we're, we're not doing anything. Oh yes, yeah. so if the, you're the weekend. To this, there this was nothing weekend. the previous. <laughs> Sorry, we, we're filming. We're <laughs> filming. We're recording ahead. Yes. But this weekend is going to start 2021. Yeah, it's going to so be awesome. Safe. We can only go up from here, honestly. So, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to the new year, yeah, 2020. <laughs> I'm literally going to have a funeral, a celebration of life, <laughs> of death for 2020. Oh goodness gracious! Oh my gosh! But yeah, I hope you guys have a good New Year's yeah. Eve, and we'll see you soon. Yeah. Bye.